he's on me. I don't know. He's on me and he's stuck like a barnacle. Ooh, that's a good way to talk about a cat laying on your lap. (laughs) Thank you. If there's ever been a cat who is like a barnacle, it's this one. Yes, that's very true. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Hey, Hannah. Deanna. Hannah. I missed this. I missed you. <laughs> I missed your face and your sneezes and <laughs> my weird your, sneezes. Your funny, uh, your funny noises. And, I know. Uh, <laughs> I missed it all. I was just talking about you yesterday because I was Zooming with some New York friends. And I mentioned that you and I were both in Colorado, which that's something we can address on the podcast. But and yep. they were like, wow, that's nuts. I'm like, it's not that nuts because we're friends from high school. So yeah. this is where we're from. It was more nuts that we both ended up in New York at the same time. And, and left New York at the same time. Yeah. And our friendship just re-enmeshed itself in a way that we could not have predicted. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, for any anyone who's wondered where we are. Yeah, because we've been that's where we are. for four weeks at least. It was you yeah. figured out that you were going to be leaving New York. And you told me so it was packing, packing, then driving, then, you know, settling. And literally, yep. I left New York, like, mm, just over a week after you or something. Because you left right mm-hmm. after July 4th, and I left on, no, I guess it's two weeks. I left uh, July 23rd or 24th. Yeah. So, and then it was yeah. me me settling here. And then us just yeah. trying to orchestrate, you know, when we're going to record. And my cousin just graduated. and wow. Anyway, I feel like we've been ranting for a long time. Because, well, not ranting, just talking because we miss each other and we haven't talked. Yeah, and we miss our, our listeners. And, and I, you know, I feel like when podcasts I like come back after random hiatuses, I don't know. I like knowing why, what's going on. Yeah. That we're not gone forever. No, we're here. We're here. It's fine. I just realized that we didn't introduce the podcast. We certainly did not. So maybe we should do that. It really has been a long time. Oh, God, it's been a little while. Um, you're listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches, if you Good didn't already know. Witches, Bad Bitches. Yeah, hopefully this is the podcast you intended to listen to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And uh, we talk about ladies and yep. feminine folk throughout history. Yep. And... Um, yeah. I'm Deanna, that's... and that's Hannah. Hello. You should know us by now. But if you're new, welcome. What a weird episode to start on. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. After like two and a half years, this is this is the one. This is it. It could be. It could happen. You never know. That's true. That's very true. But um, so today, uh, the last episode we did was Marsha P. Johnson. Well, I guess that is as good an episode as any to to need a break for a minute. We yeah. were both in tears <laughs> by the end yeah. of that one. And um, and so it's your turn. 
this week. It is my turn. I'm glad so, you, you reminded me. I was like, whose turn is it, by the way? Yeah, been... that's the only reason I knew, because I was like, wow, that's what we left it on. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, that's a 2020 the, move. This one will be a little more lighthearted. I don't, I don't know that it's any... Um, less complex but it is less depressing i think well Good. in certain ways in other ways oh, okay you'll see you'll see um okay <laughs> and so i have uh, like a really long intro i told you about it's just an article from pbs.org that is a a good sort of introduction to the world that we will be diving into today um, All right. But my other sources this week are a authorless uh, article from TulsaWorld.com. I actually got three from TulsaWorld.com. Another Ooh. piece by Terrell Lester. And then a third piece by Debbie Jackson and Hillary Pittman. Then um, ProBook.com and MuskegeePhoenix.com. There's a piece by Edwina um, Sinar, who I will point out, has something called rememberladies.weebly.com. And she does a website where she delves into um, women from Oklahoma. Oh, like, all right. So so let's start with the PBS article to give context for the world, right? Yes. Okay, here we go. Contests to determine who is the fairest of them all have been around since at least ancient Greece and the judgment of Paris. According to legend, a poor mortal goat herder, Alexandros, Paris, was called upon to settle a dispute among goddesses. Who was the most beautiful, Hera, Aphrodite, or Athena? All three goddesses offered bribes. According to the writer Apollodorus, Hera said that if she were preferred to all women, she would give him the kingdom over all men. Athena promised victory in war, and Aphrodite the hand of Helen. When Paris selected Aphrodite in exchange for getting Helen of Troy, the most beautiful mortal of all the time, he inadvertently started the Trojan War. Mm -hmm. While ancient Greeks memorialized in myth the complicated relationship between beauty and competition, there is no historical evidence that they actually held contests for women. A contest of physique called the Euandria, I think that's pronounced correctly. I don't know. You're Greek. You tell me. Um, I don't know. I don't speak Greek. <laughs> I just I just have the skin tone. Uh, was held yearly at an Athenian festival. But the contest was for men, of course. Ah. Uh, European festivals dating to the medieval era provide the most direct lineage for beauty pageants. For example, English May Day celebrations always involved the selection of queens. In the United States, the May Day tradition of selecting women to serve as symbols of bounty and community ideals continued as young, beautiful women participated in public celebrations. When George Washington rode from Mount Vernon to New York City in 1789 to assume the presidency, groups of young women dressed in white lined, in white lined his route, placing palm branches before his carriage. General Lafayette's triumphant tour of the United States in 1826 was also greeted by similar delegations of young women. The first, well, well. yeah, the first yeah. truly modern beauty contest involving the display of women's faces and figures before judges can be traced to one of America's showmen. It said greatest. I editorialized to cut it out. P.T. Barnum. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> he wasn't great. Um, uh -uh, no. In the 1850s, the ever resourceful Barnum owned a dime museum in New York City that catered to the growing audience for commercial entertainment. 
Some of his most popular attractions were national contests where dogs, chickens, flowers, and even children were displayed and judged for paying audiences. Oh, my God. While 61,000 people swarmed to his baby show in 1855, a similar event. What? Yeah. Yeah. A similar event the year before to select and exhibit the handsomest ladies in America proved a disappointment. The prize, a dowry if the winner was single, or a diamond tiara if the winner was married, was not enough to lure respectable girls and women of the Victorian era to publicly display themselves. (laughs) Shocker. So he developed a brilliant alternate plan, which was basically people could send their photos in. And then their photos would be displayed in the museum and the public would vote on who was the most beautiful. Yeah. The final 10 um, of the entrants would receive commissioned oil portraits of themselves, which I think is kind of interesting. That's kind of nice. Um, Yeah. And they would be published uh, in a fine arts book in France that was like showcasing the world's book of female beauty. Although if it's the world's book, I really wonder where from all over the world they're getting that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. La la la. Yeah. In the decades to come, the picture photo contest was widely imitated and became a respectable way for girls and women to have their beauty judged. Civic (sighs) leaders across the country, seeking to boost citizen morale, incorporate newcomers, and attract new settlers and businesses to their communities, held newspaper contests to choose women that represented the spirit of their locales. One of the most popular of these contests occurred in 1905 when promoters of the St. Louis Exposition contacted city newspapers across the country to select a representative young woman from their city to compete for a beauty title at the exposition. There was intense competition, and according to one report, 40,000 photo entries. Holy shit. Which, what like, year was that? 1905. Oh my which God. Which I would think getting your photo taken in 1905 was like an event. You couldn't just yes. snap a photo. Um. By the early decades of the 20th century, attitudes had begun to change about beauty pageants. Prohibitions against the display of women in public began to fade, though not disappear altogether. Um, One of the earliest known resort beauty pageants had been held in 1880 in Delaware, but it wasn't until the 20th century that beach resorts began to hold regular beauty pageants as entertainments for the growing middle class. In 1921, in an effort to lure tourists to stay past Labor Day, Atlantic City organizers staged the first Miss America pageant in September. Stressing that the contestants were both youthful and wholesome, the Miss, the Miss America pageant brought together issues of democracy and class, art and commerce, gender and sex, and started a tradition that would grow throughout the century to come. Of course that was Atlantic City. Yeah. Well, did you know it's still there? Like At- Atlantic City? Miss America has always been in oh. Atlantic City every year that it's existed. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. No. I didn't either until I started looking at this. I am God. not a pageant fiend. Um, though I did no, compete in I a pageant ha- when I was 10. Um, what? I know. We can talk about that later. Um, uh, yeah. So, yeah. uh, Absecon, as the locals apparently call it, or Absecon Island, but Absecon is how locals say it, so I'm going to say it that way, is where Atlantic City was built. And it was known to the Leni Lenape Indians as Absagami or Little Seawater. So obviously it got developed and there was a railroad charter from Camden to Atlantic City. And it was the shortest distance between Philadelphia and the sea. So it grew really quickly as a resort town. 
Um, oh. By the 1870s, they added a boardwalk. They had prototype roller coasters by the 1880s. Um, middle and working like class. Yeah. Middle and working class Philadelphians and soon others from uh, up and down the East Coast would come to play by the seaside. Um, vendors would hawk their wares. As previously mentioned, mechanical marvels took tourists on daring rides that made their stomachs turn. Children rode carousels, families dined in seaside cafes, and there were concerts every night. Which it's interesting because it's like it hasn't changed at all. Like that sort of no. culture. It's evolved, but it's the same general idea. I um, mean, it sounds like, yeah, it's had the same uh, uh, exports yeah. for, you know, its entire existence. Yep. So... Its tourism and lighthearted revelry made Atlantic City the perfect spot to hold the first Miss America pageant on September 8th, 1921. 1921. Weird. That's almost Weird. 100 years ago. Um, I have to admit, I I never wondered about the history of beauty pageants ever. I've just, mm-hmm. it never occurred to me that there was a history. That's why it. this is a complicated episode, I think, of Good Witches, Bad Bitches. It's just because it's about beauty pageants and they are simultaneously they can be good but mostly it's about men judging women and and it's in on yeah superficial things like that was its origin i think it's kind of developed into something different now theoretically right. um, <laughs> but has it it's not really my place to completely judge because i'm not an expert and yeah, I, I know lots of people who are into the pageant world and I think it it has its place for empowerment, but I still have a lot of strong feelings about why it doesn't. Um, it is. Yeah, at least it's very interesting. The history of it is super interesting. I, I, I thought like, so, too. I That's why I wanted to read all about this. Yeah. Um, so basically it came about, like I said, there was a, a businessmen's league of Atlantic City, and they were just trying to think of a way to get people to stay past Labor Day once the summer was over. Um, oh. They wanted to keep the fun going, money coming in. Um, money. So they organized what was called a fall frolic. Um, 350 gaily decorated rolling wicker chairs were pushed along a parade route, and 350 men pushed those chairs. But the main attraction was the young maidens who sat in those rolling chairs. Uh, mm-hmm. uh-huh. The glittering spectacle was proclaimed a success. The Businessmen's League went to work soon afterwards to plan for the next year, uh, for 1921. And they appointed a committee wow. to organize a bathers review. Oh, my God. Just excuse this to get women nuts. in bathing suits. <laughs> this is so weird. It's weird. Ugh. Um, taking a cue from the popularity of newspaper-sponsored beauty pageants based on photo submissions, as we previously talked about, uh-huh. newspapers went as far as Pittsburgh um, to the west and as far south as Washington, D.C., and they were asked to sponsor local beauty contests. The winners would participate in the Atlantic City contest. Okay. Yep. If the local newspaper would pay for the winner's wardrobe, the Atlantic City Businessmen's League would pay for the contestants' travel to compete in the inner city beauty contest. Wow. Mm-hmm. As plans proceeded and contestants were selected, a local Atlantic City newspaperman, Herb Test, he enthusiastically proclaimed, and we will call her Miss America. Ah, uh, yes. So uh, Herb yes. Test can take credit for that one. <laughs> Thank you, Herb. Yeah. <laughs> For weeks before the contest, 
Advertisements up and down the East Coast promised a beachfront bathing suit parade of thousands of the most beautiful girls in the land. Of course, of My course God. people are going to show up for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the end, there were only a handful of beauty queens competing. Oh. They were from Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, Harrisburg, Ocean City, Camden, Newark, New York, and Philadelphia. A cheering crowd of 100,000 people gathered on the boardwalk on the morning of September 8th, 1921, hoping to catch a glimpse of the bathing beauties. Holy shit. Yep. That is, I, I can't, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Like 100,000 like, people on a boardwalk just trying to see women in bathing suits? That is so fucking weird. People are really starved Isn't for Isn't that weird? I <laughs> It's really like, Ooh, are pretty girls. Let's go. I mean, I guess I'm that's still true go. today. If you say there are going to be a lot it of pretty is. girls somewhere, people will go. People will go. Mm-hmm. I, I just find that that's such the a whole baffling. point of ladies' night at bars. <laughs> get women to get for, drink for free. Men will come. Um. So weird. So the first Miss America competition was kicked off by the arrival of King Neptune on a barge that landed at the Atlantic City Yacht Club. He was surrounded by a costume ball entourage called the Frolic of Neptune, which included 20 beauties and 20 male black slaves, in quotations. No. Neat. Cute. Oh, my fucking God. Yep. The winner of the Golden Mermaid Trophy... And $100 was chosen by an equal combination of the crowd's applause and the points given to her by a panel of artists who served as judges. Artists were the judges, which I think is Uh interesting because they were, you know, purveyors of the female form, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And the winner was 16-year-old Margaret Gorman of Washington, D.C. No! Um, she She apparently looked like Mary Pickford. So. Oh, God, of course. Yeah. That was... She was the it girl mm-hmm. of the time. Yep. Um, so obviously the parade and festivities started to expand because it was super successful. Uh, the contest was increasingly popular. The number of contestants rose to 83, coming from 36 states. Um, to avoid charges of immorality from conservative protesters appalled by the idea of young women parading themselves Uh-oh. in public. <laughs> Organizers presented the contestants as natural and unsophisticated, stressing their youth and wholesomeness. Oh, so they weren't models. That was the important thing. They're just everyday girls. Okay. Mm -hmm. Publicity stressed that they didn't wear makeup and they didn't bob their hair. Both Uh symbols of 1920s worldliness and modernity. From the very beginning... The pageant was confronted with, and I still think it does to this day, a conflict between the effort to present an image of innocence and virtue, while at the same time promoting a spectacle where women paraded in public in their bathing suits. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the entire history of it is, gosh, how do we make tourists spend money here? How do we keep them entertained? Oh, I know. Let's put sexy women. Scantily clad women. Yeah. I mean, that is, you can't go back and say that's not what it's about. No, it absolutely is. Is that that's the, cat at the, it, door? the entire synthesis of it. But it also brings up an interesting point that they, they talked about how they didn't have bobbed hair and they didn't wear makeup. Because this was a time where cosmetics usage 
was just starting to explode. So the use of cosmetics in the 19th century, so before the 20th century, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, it like posed a moral dilemma for people. Oh, no. Beauty (laughs) was supposed to be a manifestation of goodness, not artifice. Right. We're big fakers if we wear makeup. Right. Still, obviously, women of all ages and all classes were familiar with a wide variety of like home recipes and things that they could, you know, pinch your cheeks or put some like beet juice on your cheek or whatever. Yeah. Um, Men too. Yeah. Well, yeah, but not in, not in the Victorian age as much as it was earlier, like the 16, 1700s, yeah. but pff, it's because it was a very moral Still. obsessed time. Yeah. Um, Americans distinguished between paint and cosmetics. So they had two, there were two different names and one was euphemistic. Um, oh. Yeah. Though products classified with these two terms frequently accomplished the same goal, which was to enhance a woman's appearance. So what? Oh, you're going to tell me. Cosmetics implied (laughs) skin improving substances, while paint denoted skin masking. As the middle class grew over the 19th century and urban life expanded, paints, especially patent compounds, were associated with social climbers and women who would, quote, trick men into marriage. Ew. Still have dudes tweeting about that. Like, make sure you know what she looks like without makeup on. Like, okay. First of all, you will if you're in any normal relationship. Yeah. With a woman. Calm the fuck down. Uh, American middle and upper classes also associated use of paint with the working class. Um, Using paint was understood as a part of a disreputable effort to use artifice to hide hide one's social status. Yes. Exactly, Kat. Um, yeah, she knows. So during the early 20th century, paints remained attached to stories of sex workers or shop girls trying to pass themselves off as like ladies, sophisticated ladies. Okay. But slowly but surely, women from all classes were experimenting with cosmetics and paints. So is the only difference between cosmetics and paint who's using them? Pretty much. The implication is just like... I think the modern day sort of equivalent is like women who use like full coverage foundation versus women who go for a more natural look. But it used to be more associated with class. I guess it still kind of is, though, you know, you see like the Kardashians, they paint the hell out of their faces, which it's, you know, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's what they do. But like, I think a natural sort of look when you have the money to afford to go to an esthetician, you know, and can, you know, use all the highest quality products so you don't have to cover it. Yeah. You can take care of your skin better and achieve more of a natural look that is still connected to class. Yep, very um, much. But it's not necessarily one or the other because you still have plenty of rich people who paint their face. <laughs> that Instagram yes. look. Um, I'm just trying to figure out how much more of this I need to talk about because it's not as connected to her, but it's, I think it's still relevant and I find the information super interesting. It's really fascinating. I've Um, never heard most of this. And I mean, obviously we talk about, we talked about uh, Madam CJ Walker, Mm -hmm. cosmetics and hair care were, the businesses were generally run by men at the time, but women were really pioneers in the fields, of course. And women were able to, come from lower means and become successful business people through the creation of cosmetics, which is yeah. fascinating to me. Um, 
um, pale skin, of course, remained the ideal throughout all of the 19th century and most of the 20th century as part of an ethos of white supremacy and predominant racism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still more natural looking skin tints started making their appearance in the early part of the 20th century. In black communities, makeup was a political issue because some women chose mm. to use and still to this day choose to use skin whiteners. Um causing debates yeah. over whether the products indicated black self-loathing or individual expression. I think that's, again, even that's still a big thing in the black community. But I think also we're still having that debate among women, whereas like if you wear too much makeup, is that self-expression or is this what society is telling you you need to do in order to be yeah. attractive? And right. I think it's both. But yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it can be. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the whole point is that the cosmetics industry and beauty pageants really kind of came into mainstream uh, consciousness around the same time as a part of a growing beauty culture. Um, right. Yeah. So by the 19th... And they were kind of at war with each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, sort of. Because, you know, you could... I guess the a lot of were. A lot of women who win beauty pageants go on to get contracts with cosmetics companies and and people want to look like miss america you know what i mean yes um well and now they wear tons of makeup like now oh, it's yeah, not yeah. really oh yeah a thing right but i can imagine back then i don't know yeah going hand in hand and yet also denouncing each other mm -hmm. kind of mm -hmm. a weird situation yeah um Apparently, by the 1920s and 1930s, taking a cue from the Miss America contest, beauty contests were everywhere in the country. Um, they were even held in high schools. As one oh. Fresno superintendent explained, quote, to make students more interested in personal care, physical education um, oh, and physical really? education. Sorry, that needed a copy editor. But so teachers, this is so gross to me. Teachers rated girls skin, hair, muscle tone and general appearance, among other criteria. <laughs> if it makes what students more interested in personal care and physical education why aren't you doing it for boys too yeah well oh, weird you know oh my god um at an iowa Jesus. state fair judges measured young women against a yardstick of health and rural virtue Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> the winner <God. laughs> I think at the Iowa State Fair in 1926, reported the Des Moines Register used no powder or rouge, cared nothing for boys and dates. Maybe she was gay. Um, did not dance and rarely went to the movies. Whoa. Oh, wow. What a beauty. <laughs> very different standards. Girl. Very different standards applied elsewhere. So it's, it's interesting how beauty pageants that are local become mm -hmm. about what standards are important to certain communities, which I find fascinating, yes. like anthropologically speaking. Um, yes. Because <laughs> that's like a footloose kind of uh, society that you're describing. Like, yeah. oh, dancing is for the devil. So this woman never leaves her bedroom. Look and that's like what beautiful. A, a beautiful paradigm of femininity she is. She's not even interested in boys. She keeps herself <laughs> pure. Um, but anyway. So weird. <laughs> Um, today on the international stage of a pageant like Miss Universe and on Miss America's national stage, participants, organizers, and audiences look for shared values and ways to feel national pride. 
And though beauty pageants sometimes get critiqued as being trivial or irrelevant, what makes them important to many people worldwide is this somewhat mysterious process by which an individual woman can become a symbol of national identity, group values, and pride. Whoa. Which is like why it's so important when you have um, beauty queens who break racial barriers and beauty queens who, like I think you had uh, one of the first openly gay beauty pageant contestants in like 2016 or 2017 maybe ish had that late 2014 maybe other beauty queens have come out of the closet after competing but usually they remain closeted because the whole point i think in many ways in days past um was that your sex appeal to men yeah, they have to feel like they could get a date with you Yeah, for, you know, whatever that means to them sitting on their couch at home with their popcorn. Yeah. If if you're straight, then they have a chance with you somehow. Yeah. And that makes you appealing. And I remember what a significant thing it was when um, uh, Ariana Miyamoto, I don't know if you remember any of this. She won Miss no. Universe, I think, uh, a few years back. Um, and she's Japanese, but she's also half black. And so it was a huge oh. thing because she has a black father and a Japanese mother, but she grew up in Japan. So she is Japanese. Oh, my God. But people like who are ethnically fully Japanese were questioning constantly if she was Japanese enough to compete. Right. In the same way that we deal with that with biracial people Mm -hmm. here not being black enough or white enough or x enough or z enough but i find that fascinating how important these beauty pageants can be for something so trivial or seemingly so trivial i don't mean to be insulting because this the whole point is i want to talk about this because i think it's it's fascinating and well you said something really interesting about how uh these pageants are like about national pride mm-hmm. and and that they these these women end up representing their country like they're supposed to be representative of their country yeah and and i'm realizing how insane that is that 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 is a beauty pageant that's supposed to do that like what's the male version what's the male version of that like i don't know politicians your country as a politicians as a, you know, and ambassadors I guess. Because that was previously a pretty male-dominated. Yeah. It's still male-dominated, let's be real. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but isn't that interesting that there's this, like, there is this contest where you as a as a person are supposed to be representative of your entire country, and it's a beauty pageant? It's about women's bodies? And, and apparently now their brains and their politics, sure. Yeah. But, like... But that is back at its inception, there was nothing except for evening gown and bathing suit. That's it. You didn't even have to hear him talk. (laughs) Well, no, you were supposed you were they were there to get money out of men who came to ogle them. Well, they weren't Mm. there to get them. If you win, you got some. But it was there to promote business so that the businessmen who put it on could get money. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But so that's that's I know that was a lot. It was long. No, that's like so fascinating. But I think it's good to set the framework. And I didn't see an author on that that article, but it is fascinating. And it comes from PBS. So 
right. I, PBS also has like a, a documentary from like 2002 about Miss America pageant. So oh, I'm okay, cool. kind of wanting to watch it now um, because there's like a, a big deal about the, the first Jewish Miss America was uh, right after World War Two. And oh, but the first black Miss America was Vanessa Williams in the 80s. It took until like 1984, I think. Oh my Miss God. America wasn't integrated until 1968. Oh and even then they didn't Lord. get black contestants because they had to win on local levels in order to compete at the higher levels. And they didn't have, I didn't, I don't think they had had any until like 1971, any black contestants, but there were black beauty pageants that sprouted up in response to it, which is also fascinating, which is another article that I want to link to, but has nothing to do <laughs> today, but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. Yeah to see i'm i'm so fascinated i need to go look at like everything yeah and there's all sorts of of feminist protests and things like that that were happening outside are you a good witch or a bad bitch let us know by becoming a patron on on our our patreon Patreon. (laughs) oh no patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh come along with doing our podcast and the more patrons we get hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons yes so if you are interested in something like that please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you also when you become a patron you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air how exciting is that very exciting yeah yeah you can find us at patreon.com slash gwbb podcast i'm gonna take us back to the 20s all right for um ours because i want to talk about norma smallwood all right and you probably have never heard of her if you don't know anything <laughs> about beauty pageants. But um, I am a clean slate. She's fascinating. And there are a lot of aspects to her story that I read and then went, hmm, that's kind of a, uh, an unappealing way to put it. Or hmm, that seems uh, like it oh. was told from her husband's perspective and not hers. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. But you'll, we'll see. We'll, I'll, you'll, we'll get there. <laughs> All right. So All right. first I'm going to open with a little piece from Tulsa world. So it was, she's from Oklahoma and um, it's from when she won. So she won in 1926. So this is what they had to say about her at the time. Okay. Uh-oh. okay. So I'm going to use my old, old timey voice. Oh, please do. <clears throat> Miss Tulsa was chosen as Miss America tonight in the beauty pageant here. She is Miss Norma Smallwood, a semi blonde. She's not, I'll say. Um, oh, The wearer of the regal robes of beauty for 1926 is again a Western girl, and again a long-haired, blue-eyed beauty whose chestnut hair is slightly darker than that of the Miss America of 1925. Okay. Her features are Grecian, and the clean-cut evenness set off by the almost severe coiffure of her straight, long hair. She is a sophomore in the Oklahoma State College for Women at Chickasha, and will finish her course there, she said tonight, regardless of the opportunities that are in store for the nation's one crowned head to whom everyone bows. Chosen for her beauty, intelligence, and personality, Miss Tulsa, as the representative American girl, is a type entirely apart from the bobbed-haired, boyish flapper popularity acclaimed as the exponent of American girlhood. 
Okay. Miss Tulsa was crowned Miss America by King Neptune in the presence of 12,000 cheering persons in the ballroom of the Million Dollar Pier. The beauty queen of last year, Miss Faye Lanifer of Oakland, abdicated in favor of the queen who is to reign for the year to come. Miss Tulsa's victory was narrow, even though it was conclusive. The judges voted, and the vote was 8-7 to seven in favor of the Tulsa beauty. It was the second honor this week to come to Miss Smallwood. Last night, she was acclaimed the best-dressed girl in an evening gown and received a silver cup. She is 18 years old and petite with a height of 5 feet 4 inches. It then went on to talk about her weight, which I'm not going to do. Um, Great. Yeah, fun. She has blue eyes and fair skin. Miss Tulsa last night was acclaimed the most beautiful girl in the evening gown among the beauties and received besides that award a $1,000 diamond watch, a silver loving cup, and a $5,000 golden mermaid. Wow. Faye, I think I said Lanifer before, but Faye Lanfear, the 1925 queen, received $50,000 in prizes after her triumph here last year, and as she afterward confided, some 32 proposals. <laughs> Miss Smallwood is the daughter of Mrs. M.A. Dickerson. She was born in Bristow, where she lived until six years ago when she moved to Tulsa. So that's what they had to say. <laughs> I, My I, God. I have to point out, the fact that they talk about her being semi-blonde, the fact they point out that she has fair skin and blue eyes, and her hair is just slightly darker. She was Cherokee. Oh. So her hair was dark. She did oh have blue God. eyes, um, but they kept calling her Grecian. They kept calling her, like, all these sort of exotic, but maintained, like, white. She's white. I was going to say. She's white. Like, what is Grecian in and this case? You notice they talk about her long, straight hair. Yeah, because that's not Grecian. No. No, it's not. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. It reminds me of, um, um, oh, my God, the director I did, whose name is now escaping me um dorothy arsner yes dorothy arsner who was described as like a school marm in in editorials about her when she was was really fashionable yeah she was she had like tailored suits straight from italy and they were like she's a school marm because we have no idea how else to describe her and still make her fit our ideals yeah we don't know how to describe a hot butch woman Uh uh-huh because that doesn't suit our ideas of femininity. Right. Um, so anyway, let's talk about Norma Smallwood, who was the first woman of color to win Miss America in 1926. And in the 1930s, they codified the rules that uh, contestants had to be of the white race. So it was like a oh few years after God. she won. And nobody talked about the fact that she was Cherokee. Well, clearly some people didn't know. I mean, they wanted it that way. <laughs> Um, So at the time, also, Tulsa World reported, quote, Miss Smallwood is so quiet, poised and graceful that the judges were mystified by her beauty and charmed by her wonderful smile. Um, One of the 15 judges impaneled that Saturday night in Atlantic City was noted American artist Haskell Coffin, which I've never heard of him, but maybe I'm just Mm -mm. ignorant. Um, He told an interviewer, quote, Without doubt, Miss Smallwood is the most beautiful girl ever entered in a pageant in Atlantic City, considering her from the point of perfect combination of intelligence, personality, and physical beauty. This makes her a representative American girl entirely apart from the other girls of this year and previous years. She is a modern Mona Lisa. 
She was placed in the lead from the start by nearly every judge, I'm sure, and that accounts for the unusual honor of having the distinction of being the first girl to win both of the titles offered to the beauties, that of being the most beautiful in an evening gown and the most beautiful in a bathing suit. That she was the first person to win both of those categories. If only they knew. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I, I, I Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know what to say about that. Like, that is so crazy. So what's interesting to me is that I think one of the reasons she won, and yes, she was stunningly beautiful. So there's no question about that. But yeah. she wore her hair in two braided buns over her ears, not in a bob. Okay. So she was going against sort of the flapper ideals of beauty, um, which I yep. think that a lot of men were opposed to because it was indicative of independence and fuck what men think. And I want to look like this. Um, she's also uh, yep. relatively curvy compared to a lot of the other contestants. Not I mean, curvy compared to women competing today, all of them were. Yeah. But um, she had like boobs and a butt. And, you know, the flapper fashion was to be boyish in a way. Yeah. To kind of eschew that sort of traditional um, notion of femininity. And right. so I think that's that's part of why men chose her to win. Right. Um, she was rocking a little bit more va va voom than uh, it was. was it was seen as more wholesome and traditional, actually. I think. Oh. And less like modern. Um, so fucking weird. Her victory was somehow seen as a blow to like flapper fashion, and flappers. Oh. Um. God. So. I don't know if it actually was because, again, it was men deciding this and it was there was no stopping the sort of like women's movement of the time. Uh, but yeah. that's how I'm it sure was. they said that they hoping it would mm -hmm. be true. more. Than... Yeah, there was one person I, I like cut it out, but now I feel like I want to say it. it was like she's so beautiful because she wears her hair long as God intended. Like, OK, okay so then everybody should be wearing their hair long by that yeah. uh, logic. Come on, dude. Because dudes can grow hair, too. <laughs> Start so, growing it out. Anyway. God intended. Norma Dacine Smallwood. I assume it's Dacine. It's D-E-S space C-Y-G-N-E, which is French, which would be Dacine. Okay. Um, she was born May 1909 in Bristol, Oklahoma. She was the daughter of Edward Smallwood. And I find this interesting that they chose to call her mom M.A. Smallwood because her mom's name was Mahalia. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Mahalia Angela Robinette Smallwood. She apparently had a half-sister and half-brother on her father's side. Didn't hear anything else about them. Um, she earned the Miss Tulsa title and graduated from high school at the age of 16. A lot of these articles oh, wow. kind of placed her age differently. Like her, the age she was when she died, the age she was when she married her husband. Where it's, So she was either 17 or 18 when she won Miss America. But most people were saying she was 18. Um, okay. She uh, was a student at the Oklahoma College for Women, where she loved to ride horses, swim, play tennis, and was a captain of her hockey field hockey team. Um, awesome. She was described by her mother as a, quote, real girl with a liking for taking corners on two wheels when she's driving. Speeding around oh. them corners. So I don't know that she was yeah. exactly the demure, quiet woman that these men Doesn't tried to like. paint her to be. Um, nah. 
and she wasn't um which is <laughs> great which i'm obsessed with um so when she returned to oklahoma triumphantly as the new miss america she was greeted at the railway station by a throng of about twenty-five thousand people holy shit isn't that crazy yes and she was the guest of honor that night at a big banquet in a brand new grand hotel called the Mayo Hotel. Um, it was barely a year old, this hotel, but it was like considered the peak of luxury in Tulsa. Um, but she soon started showing telltale signs of flapper culture, right? She was rebelling oh, no. against conventional ideas of ladylike behavior, drinking and enjoying company of numerous male admirers, which I'm obsessed with. Um, yes. As Miss America, she actually turned out to be kind of a public relations nightmare for pageant officials. <laughs> she was sharply oh, criticized no. by the press for raking in approximately $100,000 in personal appearance fees, which was more than either Ooh. Babe Ruth or the U.S. president earned. Um, $100,000 <sighs> today is about $1.5 million holy shit it was seen as unladylike oh my God. to make that much money um Ugh. so she was criticized. of course it was she was criticized people are jealous so it's unladylike. even though the woman the year before made fifty thousand, which is still a lot um it's still a fuck ton. and That's she it. was you know scandalous for a highly publicized romance with the son of a prominent pittsburgh businessman um she received more negative headlines by asking for $600 from the pageant to crown her successor in 1927. She was like, I'm not going to come do this for free. You can pay me for my appearance, just like everyone else. Um, $600 is about $8,700 today. Uh, All right. And they said no. And so she left oh the pageant God. early. Um, Good. Yeah. After her reign, um, in spite of stating otherwise when she won, she left college, which is fine by me because she was offered... Um, from the vaudeville circuit, $1,500 a week to perform. Whoa. Which is about $21,500 a week today. Oh, shit. Like, if I, I would be happy to make $1,500 a week today. No. <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. um, Holy shit. So she decided she was going to tour and perform. And I'm like, more power to yeah. her. I don't know why. You cannot say no. It blows to my that. mind that she got so much negative. I mean, I'm not surprised, but it still blows my mind. That people were yeah. like, oh, what a, she, uh, like Miss America, I think even today can't win because they can't be human. Um, no, they must be Barbie dolls mm -hmm. for as long as they are in the public eye. Yeah. Anything else is wrong. Right. So after a few months of touring um, on the vaudeville circuit, she was back home in Tulsa attending a house party in her honor at a prominent socialite's home when she met a man named Thomas Gilcrease. He was a wealthy, divorced Ooh. oilman. Um, he had two sons, and apparently he's a future benefactor of the museum and art collection that still bears his name to this day. Well, well, well. Um, as you can expect, um, he quickly became super infatuated and fell madly in love with Norma. Oh, uh, yeah. He um, gave her a $7,000 engagement ring and prenup. <laughs> oh, yeah, fair. <laughs> Which gave her $1,000 upon their wedding, and in case of divorce, $5,000 a year for each year they spend together. Um, and the diamond oh. ring he gave her was hers, but only while they remained married. So she would have to give it back mm -hmm. if they divorced. Mm -hmm. um, okay. That's 
kind of fucked up. Like it's a I get I get the prenup, but like let her keep the diamond, man. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Um whatever. He was 38 no. years old. Um, apparently soft-spoken, cultured, widely traveled, well-read, and multilingual. Everything I read about him was, like, super deferential and, like, uh, she was yeah. 20. So he was 18 years older than her. Um, they got married in September 1928, and they had a daughter, Dacine Lamore, born in 1929. Okay. Um, they spent part of their first year married in a huge, luxurious Paris apartment because he, like, would have to travel for his job. Um, and he studied French history, and she took French, Spanish, and art lessons. Um, according to Thomas, their marriage was happy and harmonious for about two years. Uh-oh. Um, but in 1933, he filed for divorce due to, quote, extreme cruelty and gross neglect of duty. I don't know what gross neglect of duty as a wife means today. I don't think that's a good enough yeah. reason to get a divorce. Um, but their tr- their divorce trial made statewide headlines and everyone was like on the edge of their seats waiting to see what was going to happen. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. So their trial, uh, it was like almost a year. Um, it ended in 1934. Thomas won his divorce and custody of his daughter. Um, oh. Norma was awarded $72,000 if she didn't get married again. What? She she said hell no, because she was still in her twenties, and um, yeah. instead settled for fifteen thousand um, dollars. They both appealed the settlement for years, so he apparently became very bitter towards her. Um, what? The fuck? I mean, I have thoughts about the way this story is framed. This is exactly what I'm talking about because all the articles from the time rely so heavily on Thomas's testimony and they barely talk about any of hers. But allegedly, the marriage crumbled as follows. Um, She apparently got bored in Europe. Maybe she was homesick would be a better way to put it. 20 years old and living in Europe for the first time. Or maybe she was unhappy with Thomas and frustrated that she missed her family and her friends, whatever. Um, So she returned home to Tulsa. Um, he would write her lovelorn letters because he was obsessed with her. Um, but her response was apparently complete indifference. She clearly didn't care for him anymore the way that she did when they first met. Um, yeah. And I don't know why that onus is only on her because he's soft-spoken and well-mannered and well-read. And, like, that doesn't mean that he's doing a good job as a husband. So no, he's not keeping her happy. And maybe she's not keeping him happy either. Like, it's it, – anyway – I well, digress. maybe she didn't want to have a kid right away. Like, maybe, maybe that was also part of it. Maybe not. If she's willing to give up custody of this child. Yeah, I think like, she fought for it. He, like, said something about how she would give the baby whiskey as a party trick until she, like, passed out on the floor. Oh, come on. And she vehemently denied that she ever did this, and her mother did too. But anyway. Um, so her mom moved in to the house that she lived in with her. Um, and apparently her mother encouraged her to spend lavishly and throw parties. Um, the couple would fight continuously about the frequent parties she was having and the fact that her mother was living there. And so soon Thomas wanted a divorce and custody of their daughter, but he didn't want to really do a lot to get both of those things. 
Um, no. His divorce suit accused his mother-in-law of taking, quote, complete charge of the wife and child and began a course of conduct for the express and willful purpose of alienating their affections from him. Okay. I mean, it's not it's not her fault that you didn't do enough to woo over your mother-in-law. Well, nothing's ever uh, that guy's fault. Yeah. That guy meaning all of those guys ever. Right. He said that while he was away on business, his wife and her mother would entertain men in the home and serve liquor against his wishes. Because, you know, this wasn't it prohibition still in the yeah. 20s, <laughs> in yeah. the early 30s. Well, and like, this is a guy who didn't want her to get remarried. So I imagine yeah. his jealousy issues were pretty mm-hmm. through the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, she could she could have spoken to a man and had a friend tell him that he saw her speaking to a guy on the street. I, I mean, assume. Yeah, he could have. And but had the, a cow the about thing it. is, he also said that Norma allowed various men to take liberties with her person and commit adultery. Um specifically okay. with a man named Charlton Janae. Um, he was the son of a Tulsa businessman. She denied it, but his son from a previous his previous marriage testified that she spent a lot of time in her art studio that she built in the house with Janae. And he said he tried to get in there and the door was locked. The blinds were drawn. After two or three minutes, she would open the door and they would be inside and she was painting his portrait. I also, <laughs> I don't really have, if she's unhappy, maybe she found love with someone who was more age appropriate. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't, I can't begrudge her that. And he was an artist or, you know, so that's, there's so much to romanticize there. Not that I condone cheating, but like, you don't know what's going on in this house. The way Thomas Gilcrease is trying to paint this is not necessarily the way it went down. Um, but anyway, um, he also at one point, uh, Thomas, the older Thomas testified he was hosting a potential business client. Um, at his home when, quote, Norma raised her skirts and whirled about the room. And that, like, affronted this potential client oh, so much no. that he left. Like, I could see your wife's ankles. Oh, no. Like, oh, my Good God. God. So I want to slap everybody, every fucking man from that time. I just love how fixated people were. This was the tabloid gossip of the time. Um and how far she had fallen in the media's eyes. Um, of course. But, you know, it, it you know, fizzled, as it always does. But the Oklahoma Supreme Court upheld the divorce settlement. So she received $15,000 in alimony, which was to be paid at a rate of $250 a month, which is the equivalent okay. of, of almost $5,000 a month today. Wow. So still pretty good. But she's fine. Because she later married another oilman, George H. Bruce, who is from Wichita, in 1936. Ooh. So her divorce settlement Ooh. was upheld in 1936. And then she remarried by 1936 anyway, because the divorce started in 33. And she was remarried in three years. Um, Go, girl. Over Get the it. years, she watched the Miss America pageant on TV. She never spoke much about her reign. She did a lot of... Um, I mean, she made $100,000 in appearance fees, right? But she also was like the face of a washing machine. And she did a bunch of advertisements. Um, But her final appearance in Tulsa, like a public appearance, was in 1964 when she attended the Miss Oklahoma pageant that year. Um, 
and she died in her sleep of an undisclosed ailment in 1966 and she was 57 oh Um, Oh, wow but i i just thought that her story was fascinating and she kind of snuck in as a non-white person who passed well enough as a white person to win the Miss America pageant in its like fourth year. And then, and then the rules changed and she wouldn't have been able to enter in the thirties. Yeah. It is really like when something is in its infancy there, I don't know. I just feel like even if that competition wanted to be more racist than apparently it was in those first few years, uh, it clearly didn't know it needed to I mean, to be they had black explicitly. men pretending to be slaves in the pageantry part of it. So, I mean, it was still super racist, especially because when she did win, all they could talk about was, like, she was beautiful because of her white features. Like, they, yeah. they talk about how she was semi-blonde. She was not. Her hair was very dark. Um, did they know? I or- don't know. I don't know. I mean, did they change the rules because they found out that a woman, I uh, that an indigenous woman won? I couldn't and then quite they were like, figure oh, that shit. out. I tried to look for articles. There was a lot, but like all of the same sort of information being regurgitated over and over. Yeah. I have a feeling that people, some people might have known, but it wasn't like, of course, widely spread. <laughs> That she was yeah, Cherokee. they would have wanted to keep it under wraps. Yeah. But that's Norma Smallwood. She's the first woman of color to be Miss America. Um, which it's insane to me that, you know, there was no black Miss America until the 1980s. And there wasn't even a Jewish Miss America until the 1940s. Um, and they yeah. actually, well, in, in looking into that, they tried to make her change her name to sound less Jewish. And she was like, Christ. no, she refused. She was like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it is that. Uh, yep. I can't. Yep. I can't. Even. They thought that would I make mean, her more is, appealing. This is why the Miss America stuff has never appealed to me. You know, pageant stuff has never appealed to me is that it is it is very much like, well, this is the. United States version of beauty and obviously we're we're grappling with a very racist history when it comes to everything in this country but beauty also beauty is I mean beauty standards we just we have a long fucked up history with that yeah well I mean I think in the conventional Miss America pageant even the the black winners that there have been, I don't think any of them have had natural hair because it's still very Eurocentric in its ideals. Right. I mean, Vanessa Williams for crying out loud is, is like a beautiful woman, but she is light skin and has blue eyes. Yes. You know? Yeah. So that was clearly the the safe choice. If you're going to have a black Miss America, why not have the one who has some more Anglo features? Right. Not to shit on that, especially because she did lose her crown. I learned that because she had a, a oh. pornographic spread that. Uh, uh. But luckily, the runner up was also a black woman. So 
<laughs> at least the crown still. Uh, I, God, I don't know. It's, what a it's fraught, weird. Contest. They want her to be sexy, but not too sexy. Not so sexy that she could get paid for it. Right. But we but, want people but to she is pay getting paid to for, see for, them. Yeah. Oh, it's so complicated and weird. We want people to pay us for it. It's not porn if people are paying us. Yeah. If they're paying her, then it's then it's modeling or it's porn or it's XYZ things. Mm-hmm. As long as they're paying us mm-hmm. and she's not getting paid, then it's then it's okay. Yep. I don't know. I don't understand it <laughs> at all. But I'm fascinated by it. And I would be curious to see that um that Goo Goo and Batha Ra and Kira Knightley movie and I know. see if they shed any light we should on watch it kind of some and of that. Talk about it. Yeah. I mean, maybe some of this is tainted for me and maybe for you too, because we were in Colorado and we were her age when John Benet Ramsey died. I wasn't and in Colorado when like... John Benet Ramsey died. Oh, you were in Texas. Mm-hmm. But um Okay. So it was it was really weird because it was still big there because obviously pageant culture is huge in Texas. Um, right. And it's it was a nationwide story. But I didn't yes. even think about that until I like moved here and somebody pointed and they're like, oh, yeah, that's John Benet Ramsey's house. But it's weird yeah. to me that pageants have become things that children can do. And and that they should look like mini adults when they do it. Yeah. Uh, it's a pedophile's yeah, wet think- dream. Really? It, I mean, when you said that the first or one of the one of those first winners. No, the first was winner 16, was 16. Yeah. That is so gross. Yeah. You know, it's like they're children mm-hmm. and we're and our entire that entire pageant has grown out of this idolization of of that. And an obsession that, that with youth standard. and the idea that that women are in their prime at that age. And virginal and but still sex like know, virginal, but you want to fuck them. Um, yeah smart but they don't talk um yeah graceful i don't know it's it's all fascinating to me um and what a strange what a strange thing that it has become a nationalist pride you know a national pride kind of thing mm -hmm. where it's like but I think that's why people lose their minds when someone who they perceive as the quote unquote wrong race wins a pageant. They're like, well, they don't represent me. That's not my America or that's not my Japan or whatever. <laughs> right. Oh, God. So complicated and weird. But then but people have good to. Good for Norma. I know. Man, Norma. And also, is, it's... she maybe inspired Princess Leia's hair like that. She yeah. had these, but her buns were braided, but they were on her ears. Yeah. It was the same buns. That is so cool. When you said that, I was just picturing it like, oh, my God, this woman is, I don't know, her aesthetic is un- unintentionally iconic. Yeah. Even now. Yeah. Um, no, it's funny that you that you picked her because she reminds me a little bit of the person that I chose. I'm I'm really excited for next to week. talk about her because for next week, just because I think you and I are tapping into uh, similar frequencies as per usual. I mean, but I, you know, I just love that she kind of. I mean, she won this pageant and then 
went, all right, I'm going to go do my own thing and I'm going to make a fuck ton of money. And, and she you know, did. And she fucking did. More power to her. Good for her. Um, <laughs> shall I give you some quick on this day? I feel like this is a long one, but. Um, I know. But yes, please. I'll lay it on you. So uh, it should be August 12th when this comes out. Oh, the cat wants to come be a part of it, too. Say hi. Kitty. Say hi to Hannah. She's purring so loud. I hope it gets on mic. Um, Say hello. So August 12th, uh, 1851, Isaac Singer is granted a patent for his sewing machine. Hey, did I tell you I've started sewing? Look at that. I'm on your same way. This all started? Yes, to make clothes for yourself. Yeah. Um, That was 1851. The Singer sewing machine was patented. Um, So cool. Yeah. Uh, 1865, Joseph Lister, British surgeon and scientist, performs the first antiseptic surgery. Science. Is that where Listerine comes from? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. (laughs) I would be so curious. I would not be surprised. Um, 1883, the last quagga dies at the Natura Artis Magistra, a zoo in Amsterdam, Netherlands. It was like a, a a sort of zebra. It was like zebra in the front and horse in the back. It was like brown in the back, striped in the front. Weird. Uh-huh. The mullet of animals. I feel like there were a lot of animals that died during this time, like became extinct during this time. Um, yeah. Uh, 1898, this one is applicable, uh, to, um, the episode that we did about, um, the last Hawaiian queen. Oh. So in 1898, on August 12th, the Hawaiian flag is lowered from Iolani Palace in an elaborate annexation ceremony and replaced with the flag of the United States to signify the transfer of sovereignty from the Republic of Hawaii to the United States. Oh my God. 1898. Because Hawaii didn't even become state for a long time, but it was no, it was a ter- it, it was, was like Puerto just, Rico. Yeah, yeah, it was just a territory that we stole. Mm-hmm. Uh, August twelfth, nineteen fifty-two, the night of the murdered poets. Thirteen Whoa. prominent Jewish intellectuals are murdered in Moscow, Russia, Soviet Union. Whoa! Yeah, I don't know anything about Jeez. that. Um, no, I wonder. If- if it relates in any way to that um, episode you did about the Russian poet. Um, well, yeah, I was going to say it's been long enough that I'm fuzzy on the details, but yeah. now I want to, I want to go back and listen to it. Yeah. What year was that? 1952. 1952. Um, I mean, she would have been around. Yeah. Um, 1964 South Africa is banned from the Olympic games due to the country's racist policies. Oh, Mm-hmm. 1981, the IBM personal computer is released. Oh, my God. What? Um, 81. And then 1990, I wanted to end on a positive, quirky note. Uh, Sue, the largest and most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton found to date, is discovered by Sue Hendrickson in South Dakota. And we're back to frickin' Mount Rushmore. (laughs) South Dakota. Oh, shit. (laughs) God damn it, Deanna. I I do this sometimes. (laughs) Uh, Terrible. Just terrible. What are you excited about this week, Han? I'm excited about um, 
a couple things. I just finished reading Gideon the Ninth by Tasman Mir. The cover is a person with a sword and they have their face painted like a skeleton and they're wearing sunglasses and there are like broken skeletons all around. It's a really badass cover. Um, it is unlike anything I have ever read really in my life. Yeah. I can't, I don't even know what to compare it to, but it was pitched, I believe as lesbian necromancers in space. So yeah, the face that you're making is kind of like exactly exactly right but it is so much more than that and the world building is so dense the characters their relationships are so fraught and weird but still have this really incredible energy and the main character Gideon is this butch lesbian who just is amazing with swords and is also the the most big-hearted doofus that I just what an interesting it's combination of traits. It. Yeah, she's just a big doof with a sword. <laughs> she is so funny. I don't know. It, I, I can't, I just don't even want to try and describe its plot because it, it I don't want to f- like inadvertently ruin the reading experience. But okay. if you, if anybody's looking for a book to read and they're willing to, be a little scared. There's a little bit of horror, you know, there's a little bit of gore. It's necromancy, of course. There is that, but uh, it's so well-written and just everything is really incredible. Well, I'm um, excited to look into that. I looked up the cover. It looks crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, so that's the first thing. And then the second one is a movie that just came out on Amazon Prime and it was a super, super indie film. It was made for $700,000 out of this guy's, the director's own money. He basically saved up his money from years of directing commercials. And it's called The Vast of Night. I haven't even heard Have of you it. heard of no. this? And it is like an hour and a half long episode of The Twilight Zone. Like that's kind of how it's designed. Okay. But it also feels... Um, like it's taking inspiration from like old radio dramas like War of the Worlds. Okay. As well. Have I seen a trailer and for this? I feel like I have. It is it's so fascinating. It, I mean, the it's like a it's a character study and kind of like a what if narrative, but it's just really well done. It it just evokes that time period like 1950s so well and it's set in this tiny town in New Mexico. Um, and it's about a young guy who is a radio DJ in this, in this small town and the telephone switchboard operator that he's friends with, who works at the same time that he does his calls. And so she's, he does his show. So she's always patching through his calls Mm -hmm. and listens to his show as a result. And, um, and of course they hear something funky over the air that he didn't play and that nobody really recognizes or or can explain what it is and so they go on this like short journey to figuring out where the sound is coming from and why huh um but it's really good and this this guy is a first-time director and made it with his own money and made a really beautiful film so um, i feel like that would be super inspiring to you Yes. And I think, um, I think 
Alex would like it a lot, to be honest, right. because it is, uh, it just, he, it's a lot of things that I think he's a geek for. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, those are the things I'm excited about and I want people to go check out. So well, that's, I will. that's it. Huh. Good. Do it. Okay. Do it. Okay. But I think that, uh, I think that does it. I think that wraps us up. Yeah. I can't believe it's been a month plus, but um, here we are. Here we are. We're back. We're back, baby. We're doing it. Um, and, and, you know. I mean, we'll, we'll be seeing you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in after our little hiatus. Uh, we miss yeah. you. And, we miss you. Uh, we appreciate, we appreciate you guys. We appreciate you. <laughs> and on that note, peace out, witches. Bye. to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce.